Welcome to episode 10 of What Kind of Country? I'm Victoria Meakin, and I'm moving with my family to the beautiful country of New Zealand. It's 2021, and the world is still in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic, so myself, my husband, and our two young children are governed by New Zealand's very strict managed isolation rules, meaning we'll be spending two weeks in a government-mandated hotel. And I'm delighted to say that I'll be dedicating part of that time to speaking remotely to some very generous Kiwis who've given up their time to help me answer the question, in 2021, what kind of country are we moving to? Coming up in this episode, the writer and speaker Bernard Hickey sketches out the New Zealand political landscape and sheds light on a housing crisis that's affecting many Kiwis. As we sit in our MIQ hotel whiling away some of our time watching TV, we've already become used to tuning in on regular afternoons to watch New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern update the country on the latest coronavirus restrictions and plans. I'm guessing in normal times that the daytime TV audience wouldn't be treated to quite so many appearances from the PM. But of course, these are far from normal times. My guest today, Bernard Hickey, has spent much of his career writing about and commentating on the New Zealand government of the day and the many social, financial and business issues that the country continues to face. He's also the founding editor of the Kaka newsletter about New Zealand's political economy. Hi, Bernard. Kia ora. Good to speak to you. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. Before we talk politics, government and some other of the serious New Zealand issues that you regularly address, I wanted to start with three questions about New Zealand lifestyle that I'm asking all interviewees for this podcast. So first things first, could I ask, what is your favourite New Zealand beach? Oh, yes. Well, near Auckland on the west coast, there is a beach called Bethel's Beach, spelt B-E-T-H. E-double-L-S. And it's this wild, windswept, um, dramatic place with hardly any people. It takes about half an hour to get there from Auckland and you have to walk down a river and then you suddenly come across this expansive beach where the, um, the sea seems to go forever out to the sky and there's amazing waves and great cliffs and lots of sand and very dark sand it's a almost an iron sand and in the summer if, if you're lucky when there's no uh, no wind um, you can go for a swim there and then uh, just across um, a little hill there's another cute little beach it's like you've gone into a completely different world and then um, if you want something different again just around behind the beach are these amazing sand dunes which go down to this uh, little inland lake um, so it's it's like you're in some sort of different world, even though you're half an hour from Auckland. And because we don't have nearly enough people, uh, there are hardly is usually hardly anyone there. So it's um it's my little getaway when I get to Auckland. Excellent, so a real escape. Yeah, um, it's often the the, the site of. Uh, Great um, movie backdrops. I think the piano uh, was filmed there. And uh, for those who, who know the locals, um, the Finn brothers from Crowded House have a, a, a what we call a batch, which is a holiday home uh, not far from there. 
secondly, Bernard, can I ask where in New Zealand you'd recommend I take my young family camping? Yeah, Devil's Beach is actually not a bad um, idea. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking for a, a road trip, I would um, head head up north, um, apart from anything that's warmer, and there are multitudes of beaches, um, particularly once you get up past um, Whangarei and you can head on up towards Cape Reinga, where there are, again, lots of amazing beaches, places to camp, and it's relatively dry and warm, which when you're camping is important, uh, particularly if you've got kids. I would save the um, South Island uh, holiday for February, March um, and try and stay somewhere dry because a wet, cold camping trip in New Zealand is the worst. Now I've got that image in my head totally, but thank you for those tips. Thirdly, the last question along these lines for now, can you name one thing that you think every visitor to New Zealand should experience? Yeah, I, I would I would say um, go to a beach and dig your toes in the sand and lie down and um, feel the sun on your face. That's, that's the most fun thing that uh, I do whenever I get near a beach. And for New Zealanders, the beach is a, I wouldn't call it a sacred place, but it's the place where we feel the most connected to the place and the place where we've all got such great memories of family holidays and swims and surfing and barbecues and beach cricket and and uh interestingly if you try to take a beach off a new zealander they get very grumpy so um (laughs) one of our biggest political stouches was um something called the foreshore and seabed act which um actually changed new zealand politics there was a court ruling which seemed to suggest that uh, Māori interests um, could take control of some beaches and for for a lot of New Zealanders who treat the beach as the last public place that they can use and um, feel um, free at, uh, it was the final straw. Wrongly unfortunately um, and actually the whole thing could have been dealt with uh, in a much better way but um, it actually led to the creation of the Māori Party and a couple of decades of very ill will between people who had been colleagues and um, just goes to show you how important beaches are in New Zealand. Well we've moved already Bernard then to one of your areas of uh, expertise New Zealand politics. Uh, I wondered if you'd indulge me with a bit of a New Zealand politics 101 lesson for my first question. In the UK, we were all fascinated when a coalition government was formed back in 2010 because it was such an unusual occurrence for Great Britain. It's not, of course, unusual in New Zealand. Could you describe to me how the NZ electoral system brings about such regular coalitions? Yeah, well, we, on the face of it, have a, a very Westminster style of um, politics. And we had exactly the same system as Britain up until 1996, when we changed to a system of voting called mixed member proportional. It's exactly the same as the German system, actually. So when you see coalitions in Germany and grand coalitions and the Greens and the left and the right all over the place, that's um, very familiar to us. 
And if you're looking for a comparison that seems to make sense in New Zealand, that would be it. It does mean that almost always, in fact, every time until last year, we have had a coalition government since 1996, which typically mean that there's a, a rump centre-left or a rump centre-right party, and then a, a bunch of little add-ons on the side to make sure you get up over the 60-seat mark in our 120-seat parliament. And um, then you do a bunch of deals um, as you're forming the government, and um, and then everyone waits for the next election to see how the the chips fall and whether there's a new different coalition government that gets set up. The exception to the rule is uh, last year because of COVID and because of the extraordinarily uh, extraordinary connection that the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has with the New Zealand people. The Labour Party, which she leads, um, won the election in its own right. It's never happened before and it means that she, because we have a single chamber parliament, and the central government is completely dominant in our economy and our society, she has pretty much unrivaled power um, to do whatever she and the Labour Party wants because Labour has more than 60 seats in the parliament. This is extremely un unusual in New Zealand politics uh, and reflects the um, extremely unusual times. So moving on to a question specifically about Jacinda Ardern, and of course she is a pretty well-known figure on the world stage as well, but her rise to power and to the position of party leader before she was elected as prime minister wasn't a guaranteed or necessarily expected thing at all. Could you describe for me how the prime minister got to the top of the Labour Party and then became PM? Yeah, accidentally, basically. <laughs> She had been in Parliament since 2008 and had always been seen as a potential leader but had not had a fantastic uh, record in Parliament and had actually seen herself as a deputy leader to um, Grant Robertson who was always more popular inside the party and seen as a much more likely leader. Uh, unfortunately, um, at various points between 2011 and 2015, um, Grant Robertson as the uh, candidate for leader and Jacinda Ardern as the candidate for deputy leader uh, lost various internal elections. Unfortunately, um, in part because uh, Grant Robertson is gay and there are uh, certain very conservative groups within the Labour Party which um, didn't want him to be the leader of the party, which is really unfortunate. But uh, what it meant was that when um, the time came just before the 2017 election, when Labour was well behind in the polls and expected to lose quite badly, the leader at the time, Andrew Little, decided to step down to, in, in a way, um, reduce the scale of the defeat. And uh, Jacinda Ardern um, was very reluctant to take the top job. She'd never seen herself in it and um, was really sort of had to be convinced to take the top job because she expected and everyone else expected that she would lead the party to a bad defeat. And her role was to what they call rescue the furniture. So t take the mm -hmm. furniture out as the house is burning down so that you at least keep the furniture. But in an extraordinary period of about two or three weeks, for some reason, 
Uh, I know the reason. She's an extremely effective communicator, an amazing retail politician. She connected with New Zealand and the message she was giving seemed to resonate in a way that hadn't before. And so she swept in 2017 to becoming almost immediately one of the most popular politicians we'd ever had and uh, led the Labour Party to not victory in its own right, but after a coalition with the New Zealand First Party, uh, that first term in power from 2017 to 2020. So you've described how all-powerful Jacinda Ardern seems to be at the moment. Aside from general elections and by-elections, how is the government of the day regularly held to account in New Zealand? Well, it will be familiar to British listeners. Um, We also have question time in Parliament, and um, it's a very similar system. So the opposition leaders are able to ask any minister of the government and often the prime minister any question about anything. We get um, the questions in advance a couple of hours early, and there is an opportunity for the opposition leader and the questioners to have two or three follow-up questions with the Prime Minister uh, and other ministers, and it's quite a scene. Um, I'm often in uh, parliamentary press gallery. It's all played on television and radio. It usually doesn't get a very big audience, but it is one of those moments when you see uh, in the raw how politicians operate, and they have to be very nimble on their feet. There's no room for someone to craft a very carefully worded reply and to read a a teleprompter. You really have to uh, stand on two feet and do it yourself. And uh, so it's seen as the the real fulcrum of our political debate, that question time clash. And um, uh, we also have select committees which give various backbenchers an opportunity to grill various people, on occasion ministers, but usually officials in departments, and uh, that can be interesting as well. Now, the National Party, the main opposition party at the moment, has had a tumultuous time in recent years. Are those waters getting calmer now? No. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, um, just uh, earlier today, the now opposition leader, the leader of the National Party, Judith Collins, reshuffled her front bench and in the process demoting one of those MPs in her caucus who is seen as a potential rival and as uh, someone um, in a different part of the party, a different uh, group, if you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is um, likely to continue to um, lead to uh, dissension in the caucus. And it's interesting that um, over the last really three or four months there've been constant behind the scenes under the covers sources said uh, dissension within the ranks of the national party she doesn't have the support of all of those in the party Jude Collins is seen as quite um, conservative in a social sense Mm -hmm. and conservative in an economic sense whereas the national party has always had a relatively liberal uh, wing in both economic and social uh, senses and Chris Bishop the guy who was demoted uh, along with a couple of others are seen as the liberal wing who have been forced into a place they don't want to be and 
Uh, Many people in the National Party and uh, around it are worried that uh, Judith Collins is taking the party in a very, for the want of a better word, uh, Trumpy direction, uh, which Mm -hmm. um, pushes all the usual buttons about, you know, woke politicians and uh, all of these things. And it's, it's not how you win elections in New Zealand. In New Zealand, you have to appeal to the centre under this MMP system. You can't really just um, win with your hardcore base. You have to reach across and win the centre vote. She's not doing it. She's incredibly unpopular, uh, according to the polls. And at the moment, National are headed for a big loss in the election in 2023. Uh, And... uh, the thing that's unfortunate for National is no, there's no clear successor in the wings or anyone who wants it. It's what we call in New Zealand a hospital pass in rugby when you mm-hmm. throw the ball out the back line to someone and just as they catch the ball, they get tackled by a really big tackler and they've got nowhere to go. That's a hospital pass. You get tackled and then you end up in hospital. <laughs> so Lovely. No one, no one wants to catch the ball um, if Judith Collins throws it back to them because uh, timing is everything in politics. And if you're a, a, a candidate for leader and you want to be the leader, you want to be the leader just as the party is about to win rather than, rather than just as it's about to lose. So she's uh, hanging on there and um, trying to remake the caucus, at least in her own image, and force loyalty. But, of course, you have to earn it. And that's the problem for her and uh, for the National Party. Moving on, Bernard, to one of the issues that I know you've devoted a lot of your time to in recent years, uh, housing. Again, apologies for asking you to sum up something so complex in general terms, but could you take me through the main challenges that young New Zealanders hoping to get on the housing ladder are facing at the moment? Well, uh, it takes upwards of 20 years of saving for a um, young person who's maybe just come out of university or some sort of training who has a student loan to pay off and is paying very high rent to actually save enough money for a deposit right now would take 20 years of saving. So by the time you're out of university and you've got some sort of proper job, uh, that's if you can get a proper job, uh, then, you know, by the time you're ready to have your own home, you're into your 40s. And uh, that's often too late to have families. And in New Zealand, because our rental property stock is so poor, we don't have a big supply of what you would see as um, council housing or, you know, reasonably functional houses that are warm enough to live in. A lot of our rental stock is very insecure, unhealthy, cold, damp, and frankly not safe for a family to grow up in. And uh, it's unfortunate more than half of New Zealand's children are living in rental properties. We have an enormous number of kids who turn up at uh, hospitals with preventable diseases, chest infections, skin infections, all sorts of um, winter cold problems um, because our housing stock is so poor and so expensive. And so for a lot of people, they don't really have an opportunity or they don't see an opportunity under their own steam to um, buy a house and start a family. And so uh, now we have effectively a bifurcated society of those who own property and might be able to help their own children into their own property. 
and those who don't own property and whose parents don't own property. And uh, one of the, the sort of jokes, it's a rather dark joke I have, is that in New Zealand, our version of Tinder or Bumble should have a special checkbox which says, my parents own property. And that is um, it's a sort of a pride and prejudice type world where... Uh, in essence, the only thing that matters is whether you can marry into property or or stay in a family that has property. And we have these now quite difficult conversations or discussions when someone peers up with someone else um, to understand whether their family own property, whether their family can help get the deposit for the house, and also, you know, whether your daughter or son is um, marrying uh, well <laughs> because if you get someone who's who's not the best you know then you've put a big chunk of your family's financial future in the hands of a, you know um, a rat bag uh, daughter or son-in-law and unlike in most countries where uh, the risks are taken by the couple themselves uh, in New Zealand it's a family affair because no one can afford to buy a house off their own bat, and we have created a new landed gentry in a country that was formed uh, largely by migrants from Britain who were trying to get away from that, and Mm -hmm. that's where we've ended right back. Bernard, I'm aware we've only just scratched the surface on a lot of issues there, but thank you. I really appreciate your insight. Um, Finally, I wanted to move back to one of those more general questions I've been asking interviewees about And uh, I wanted to ask you, what piece of advice would you give to a newcomer to New Zealand who has just arrived and is planning to make a life here? Turn around and go home. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, unless you've come here with a big lotto win or, um, you know, your parents are about to give you a big deposit to buy a house, um, it's impossible to live here uh, with a regular job. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, even in the more remote areas, the smaller towns and cities, prices have gone crazy. And if you have a look at you know the Facebook groups and the message boards and various discussions amongst uh, British migrants to New Zealand, particularly in the last five years, many have turned around and gone home simply because the cost of living is just so high, not just yeah. the cost of um, housing, but also of all sorts of things. Uh, groceries, for example, we just had a a big report from our Commerce Commission, which uh, polices competition, which found that we only have two supermarket groups in New Zealand and they're operating as a duopoly and their profits are twice the level of uh, profits than other supermarkets in the rest of the world. And because we haven't dealt with this housing issue, um, uh, we have a real problem with housing shortages. So Mm -hmm. not only is it brutally expensive, we have the most expensive rental property in the world, we have the most expensive uh, housing to buy in the world, but we now have uh, upwards of 30,000 people who are registered as homeless. And we have a big problem with a lot of people who are living in the backs of cars, in vans, sleeping on couches, uh, in tents, and in motels. And uh, it's because we have this big housing shortage. Unfortunately, at the same time, um, governments of both flavour have encouraged an awful lot of temporary workers to come and live in New Zealand on relatively low wages. Um, for those people in Britain who went through the Brexit debate, it mm-hmm. will be a familiar story. And um, 
that pressure of population without the spending on infrastructure has led to all sorts of problems with congestion, um, shortages in hospitals, problems getting into schools, and of course the issue with housing. So the one thing I'd recommend for those people <laughs> who've just rocked up and opened the door on the airport and um, breathe in the clean, fantastic air and go, gee, this is an amazing place. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. um, just make sure before you come, you have a good look at the real estate websites. So one is called trademe.co.nz. Realestate.co.nz is another one. Just to get a sense of what your income will be and what uh, it will cost you to buy a house, whether you have a deposit for that. And then have a look at the rents. And have a really good look and have a really good think. And also, when you do your budgeting, double the amount that you would normally spend on food and um, transport. And then look at the wages, which typically are around 20 to 30% lower in New Zealand than they are in Britain and in other countries. Yeah. And then think about it. I, I would come for a holiday. <laughs> I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't stay. And I'm someone who's lived in Britain. So yes. I... Um, I have a sense of what's going on there. Uh, back in 2003, when I was living there, um, the costs of living were broadly similar and our housing market hadn't gone completely crazy. It was just marginally crazy. Now it is just off the charts crazy. And I would say that before you jump on a plane, A, if, I mean, you won't be able to come anyway because we have a brutally tough quarantine system, which means that not even New Zealanders with all sorts of medical conditions can come back and get places in MIQ and mm -hmm. manage isolation and quarantine, which I think you're in at the moment. I am, uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you'd be lucky to get in, but before you come, just have a really good look at the cost of living. It is brutal and um, we look good on the brochures and yes, you'll have a fantastic day at the beach, but you'll find living here incredibly expensive. And, um, you know, we're lovely people and all of that, but uh, we have gotten our housing market and other chunks of our economy very badly wrong. And just know that before you come. Bernard, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure to speak to you and I really appreciate uh, your insight, your frank insight into uh, just a few areas of New Zealand life. No worries, I'm unelectable and unemployable. So that gives <laughs> me some freedom. Big thanks to Bernard Hickey for sharing his thoughts today. To subscribe to Bernard's newsletter and find more of his work, go to thekaka.substack.com. What Kind of Country was written, presented and edited by me, Victoria Meakin. My producer in Christchurch is Bridget de Goldie, and our original music was written and performed in New Zealand by Corey Bezecki. What Kind of Country is a Broaden Up production.